Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Adam Fout. Adam was born to two attorneys in San Diego, California. Although he didn't know it at the time, Adam struggled with OCD, depression, anxiety, and binge eating from a young age. He began a, quote, legal career of his own after a run-in with the Kansas City Bureau of Investigation while in college. Never a good sign. Following this experience, Adam's mental health spiraled out of control. He attempted suicide, spent time in multiple psych wards, and went to rehab. Like many with substance use disorder, Adam struggled with accepting that his substance use was a problem. Today, by working the programs of Cocaine Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous, Adam enjoys a life of long-term recovery. He travels with his wife, Michaela, who is a travel nurse. Adam is a speculative fiction and nonfiction author, as well as an addiction recovery and mental health blogger. Adam is currently querying his memoir, which includes several nonfiction chapters listed on his website, adamfout.com, adamfout.com. Woo! All right. Hello, everybody. Glad to have you back. If you're coming back or if this is your first episode ever, welcome to the podcast. Adam is our guest today. He was awesome. This is really a conversation about all of the different mental anguish that we experience as people who end up in recovery. And Adam really, you know, dives into the mental health aspect of it, which I think is great. And then he also, we also talked a bit about struggling with eating disorders and and binge eating. And I thought that we got really got to the heart of what it looks like to struggle with mental health and, and uh, particularly some good stuff after he got sober as well. So I hope that this episode is helpful. And please feel free to reach out to Adam at adamfout.com if any of this speaks to you. All right, episode 97. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Adam, nice to meet you. Welcome to The Courage to Change. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. So you yeah. found us on uh, Instagram? Yes, I did. Awesome. Very exciting. And um, I was reading through your story and your notes, and we have a ton of similarities. So I'm excited to chat about them. But one of the big ones that you dealt with very specifically mm-hmm was mental health issues. And that's kind of a big thing you talk about is that, oh, I almost forgot. Before we get started Mm -hmm. on that, we have a fun order of business. I got a photo of you, (laughs) which we will share. And this is supposed to be your bad haircut 
photo, yeah. but I'm going to shame you because <laughs> this photo is not a bad haircut. I mean, I can see you're very like dazed and confused. Yes. Ask like that. And I love like, it's very, but it doesn't, it's not like bad haircut. It's just, you know, teenage dumb, but tell me about this photo. It'll go up on Instagram. Uh, so people will be able to check it out on Instagram when they're listening to your pod. Sure. Well, I'm glad you think it's nice. Maybe I just don't take bad haircuts. So this was back when I was 18 and I decided my hair needed to be very long in a fit, uh, peak of rebellion. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. That picture, I don't remember. I'm sure I was very drunk. <laughs> so, I'm the, you should see the rest of the picture. Everyone else is smiling. They got their thumbs oh, up. How funny. They've all had like two beers, and then I'm over there like about to throw up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, uh, the, the always overdoing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm that, I was that person too. Like, just always took it a little too far. Yeah. <laughs> So you grew up in San Diego? Yeah, I was, well, sort of. So I was there until I was nine, and then I moved to uh, Reno and lived in Nevada for like three years, and then we moved back to California for like a year and a half, and then we moved to Kansas, and that's where I started drinking and getting high. Your parents were both attorneys. Yeah. How did they move around like that? So my mom just kept getting, um, she just kept getting promoted at AT AT&T she was an attorney there so got it okay okay and dad what what kind of attorney was dad um so he's a tax attorney and then after we moved um to Kansas he stopped practicing and started taking care of us full-time awesome okay so you had the um and mom stayed working yeah exactly okay cool and uh are you so it looks like you're the oldest of three boys yes yes awesome Awesome. Love that. What's the, I'm, I'm the oldest of three girls. What's your, uh, what's the age span? So my, one of my brothers is four years younger and the other is nine years younger. Okay. And how old are you guys now? So I am 36. Uh, Marshall is 31 and Zachary is 27. Nice. Okay. Okay. I think so. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. It's at a certain point, it just gets lost. Right. And what was your childhood like? Was it what did you have any of the symptoms of mental health? Um, You know, any, any, you know, using what what, give us a little insight into what it looked like? I mean, it was um, it was pretty normal on the outside and on the inside. Um, As far as I could tell, you know, I went to schools. I went to good schools, private schools. I, um, you know, we we didn't my brothers and i would would fight sort of but not really you know moving around kind of sucked because you know you're always the new kid but it wasn't like we were every 6 months or something like that it was only a few times but you know that i definitely had the mental health issues from a very young age and i don't i didn't realize it until you know going back and looking back at, to when i was a kid that i had some pretty deep depression i had some bad anxiety especially social anxiety ocd and so that was all there and i was sort of primed you know so for the the first time i got high i was like oh hey this is helping something i didn't know needed to be helped so how young do you think 
that the depression, anxiety, OCD, how young do you think that that started presenting when you look back now? When I look back, I think I probably had that from day one, honestly. I think it was genetic and that it was just, it was always there. And, you know, circumstances would make it better or worse. But I remember being a little kid and just being sad, just feeling like not a part of anything, even though I had friends and so forth. Like, I just felt like I wasn't normal. Right. Normal. (laughs) Normal. (laughs) Uh, Come to find out, that would be... Uh, a, a tall order. And right. what was your, you, you know, you started use you started using around 17 with alcohol yeah. and drugs. What was your relationship like with food? Um, so food had always been a problem. And that's where you can really see in my past, like the addiction rearing its head because I would, I would eat like crazy. And I remember even being like 15 or 16 and talking to a friend And the friend was like, um, you know, why don't you try drinking beer? And I said, well, man, when I drink Mountain Dew, I have like six Mountain Dews in a row. So I don't know that this is a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So you had some insight into this. Yes. Did you know what addiction was? Was it in your family? No. So you had no idea. I didn't even know it was in my family. It was, but I had no idea that it was. Um, You know, I was not anywhere around my family on my dad's side where the addiction was. So, you know, I it was very much not something I was aware of or was on my radar. But, you know, I was overeating from, you know, again, day one, I think. I was always eating all my food, eating lots of candy, eating lots of sweets, you know, whatever I get my hands on. Did the overeating uh, present as a weight problem or just a food? Yes. Oh, it did. Okay. So tell me about that. Yeah. So I was always overweight. And when you combine that with the social anxiety and the moving around, it was not fun. I did get bullied from time to time. It wasn't anything that was like terrible. But it was de- it was enough to make it clear you're you know you're not one of us, right? And so then, tell me about you know starting to use you know at seventeen when you when you were in Kansas. What was what? How did you get introduced to that? So I had a girlfriend, and the girlfriend was in Wichita, which was three hours away from where I was, and she had an uncle who's 21. She was like 15, I think. And he smoked weed. And she was like, you should try this. She smoked cigarettes. And she had been trying to get me to smoke cigarettes. And I tried. And of course, those attempts were, you know, ill fated and awful. And I was coughing everywhere. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it was it was pretty horrible. But I I gave it. You know, I kept trying, and um, eventually you. I managed to. Sm- I know I wouldn't give up. Yeah, and I eventually managed to smoke some cigarettes. And then with weed, it was the same thing. I smoked, and um, the first time nothing happened. But I wasn't going to give up. No, we don't. Get, so, we're not quitters. No, no, no. So the second time I was like, whoa, this is something else. I need to do this every day. And I was immediately hooked. Immediately. So marijuana was the, well, I guess nicotine cigarettes were your 
your introduction. Right, right. You So after you, sm- you got into marijuana, started smoking weed, and when did you get to Oxy? I was 20 when I started doing Oxy. But I mean, there was definitely some time in there where I was trying a lot of hard drugs between 17 and 20. So because I was like, oh, marijuana is not so bad. How bad could the other drugs really be? Right, right. So, you know, I I tried a lot, but it wasn't until and at some point in there, I did try Oxy and nothing really bad happened. But then I had a friend who had been hooked on it since he was 13 when he got cancer and realized that the opiates made him feel good. And he had um, a stepfather that he would steal it from every weekend, basically. And so we started doing it every weekend for three weeks. And after three weeks, I was hooked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> opiates will do that too. How did, how did you, you know, you, you grew up, you, you have attorneys, you know, corporate America attorney for parents, you, you know, you're, you're in college. There's so many, I feel like so many parents are like, okay, if they grew up in a good, you know, with good examples and they good values and blah, 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 blah. And they get to college, it'll be all be okay. And obviously you and I both know that that's a, you know, if you're, you're genetically an alcoholic and you introduce those things, you know, that all bets are off. But what did you think? What was your mindset, you know, between 18 and or 17 when you started and 20 when you got really addicted? What was your what was the progression of the thoughts around what you were doing and the, you know, how bad it was or wasn't and, you know, how mental health played into that? I think um, my thoughts around it was I just don't care and I just don't understand really that any of the, you know, potential consequences, if there are any, I don't care, you know, very much um, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I'm doing it because it makes me feel good. And that's kind of about it. You know, I did. I don't think those values or morals or any of that played any role whatsoever. Um, you know, <laughs> yes, I do. I, I'm laughing because I mean, laughing, not laughing. It's like I have two little boys, and and like you're describing one of them, <clears throat> and and uh, like from the you know, from the get get go, and you're also describing me, right? I was, I, you're as a kid, I'm the oldest of three girls. We moved around not a lot, but enough for it to, to be the new kid a bunch of times, and I started binge eating when we started moving around a lot. Same as you. Mental health, you know, depression, anxiety, not so much OCD. I, I, I joke about that with my uh, per, with Christiana, our producer and pr- production yeah. coordinator, because I really could use some OCD. I just <laughs> I really could use some and I just do not have it. But but yeah, I mean, I relate a lot to what you were talking. I started to lose the weight when I started to do the drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all this, you know, nice parents and blah, blah, blah. But, Mm -hmm. but how that just, when you don't feel comfortable in your own skin and, and how, you know, and I was laughing, thinking about my son, both my sons, but, but one in particular, how, you know, I can see that I can be the best parent and I am going to do the best that I possibly can. But I also understand having been there that, 
you know, I didn't cause it, but I also can't cure it. And I can say as much as I want to, but when you're born feeling that way and you discover something that makes you feel so much better, getting in between that is, is, is really tough. And it's, it's scary as a parent looking at it, you know, looking back at it, it really is, but it, I, I see how genetic it is. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you get to this place, right? It's at, at what point did it stop working for you? Right. Cause I always say we hired the substances for a job to do. They did a great job. They made us, you know, popular, six feet tall, bulletproof, all the things, right? And then they turn on us and now they go from being our solution to being our problem. When did when did that turn happen for you? So I think the real turn didn't happen until I was about 25 and they really did stop, you know, doing what I needed them to do. But before that, I mean, life was falling apart so badly by 23 and 24 that you could say they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. (laughs) Right. There's a, there's like a point at which you're totally right. There's a point at which where they are no longer doing what they're supposed to be doing, but we're still like hyping them up. Right. Like we're still telling ourselves like, no, 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 this is still working. This is still working. But yeah, you're right. Like it, it takes us a while to get to the place where we understand that it's no longer working. Yeah, exactly. What, you know, I had consequence, I had, you know, legal, emotional, uh, financial, (laughs) residential, (laughs) lots of consequences, right? right? (laughs) What, what, uh, what were some of the consequences you faced, you faced as a result of this, this, you know, getting addicted to the oxy, like you were talking about that three week bender, and then you're addicted? What, what ended up happening? Oh, what didn't end up happening? Mm, yeah. Let's see. So I lost every job you could imagine, which were all like, you know, minimum wage jobs. I could not graduate from school for the life of me. You know, school, I was in school for a long time and school was sort of my cover. You know, that's how I got my parents yeah. to keep sending me the money I needed. Right. And there would be times, you know, where I would, um, I'm going to do it this semester and then I'd end up withdrawing from three classes and getting a C and a fourth one or something like that. So school was a constant, constantly getting screwed over. Let's see. And and that was just in the beginning. You know, I had lots of relationship issues with girls, with friends. You know, I had lots of um, issues with apartments. Um, I was constantly moving apartments because of, you know, mostly because I was because I was selling drugs. I was selling. Oxy. Oh, okay. Okay. You got into the, you got it. I was, I was terrible at that. So I, I always admire people. Who, <laughs> I really, I just, my, my ability to, to sell drugs is, is quite piss poor. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm impressed when people can do it. Cause I just, just absolutely could not make that happen. Yeah. No, I, um, I had a penchant for finding old people mm. and convincing them to give mm-hmm, me their pills. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> yes. Did you have any, uh, did you tell any your, yourself any stories or maybe you, you knew people who did about how like this wasn't a real drug problem because these were pharmaceutical grade and they could be prescribed by someone in a white coat? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. So that was part yeah, of the narrative. Yeah. Like, I'm not like yep. you guys. I'm not shooting heroin. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. But then the funny thing is when heroin came around, you know, it was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, that that's literally how it went down is I had a guy, a guy who said, uh, 
hey, I got some Oxy. And I was like, okay. And I went over and he was like, oh, uh, by the way, it's not Oxy, it's heroin. And I paused for about one second and then I said, all right, that's fine. Right, <laughs> like, right. Like, uh, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and I was actually talking to my sister last night. And we were talking about kind of how, where our stories diverge and my um, my middle sister and it they diverged at the time we were talking about it specifically at the time where I first shot heroin because up until then we did a lot of stuff together and you know, and she was saying how, you know, we, we were talking about like that moment in time. And, but, you know, I think that one thing that people don't realize is that a lot of, you know, soccer moms and, and people who get in car accidents or all these things, they're taking the prescription heroin, they're taking the, the, you know, the opiates, the prescription opiates, and they run out or something happens or in, you know, they're sick or whatever. And then the only option there is heroin. And I think that you really don't realize that it, that could be you. And I hear this story so often, particularly with my company, hearing from people who, you know, really truly get into it with, with pain. And then the next thing they know, they're desperate and they they have to use heroin and, and it's a hop, skip and a jump. But by the time you're using those pills, you know, you're in so deep, but you don't realize how in, I feel like when you're shooting, like when you're, you're using a needle to shoot heroin, you're like, yeah, this is a problem. Like it, it, there was never a right. time in my <laughs> life where I was confused about whether or not heroin was a problem. I was, I was fully right, aware right. of that. Right. But like, there were lots of times with other things where I, I I definitely negotiated and I feel like pills are where people get themselves so deep in and they don't even realize it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it, it felt like um, it felt like it was OK for a long time. Right. Right. And how how was your, how was your mental health during this time? <laughs> it was um, slowly but surely falling apart. Okay. Because I was also doing a lot of Adderall and a lot of uh, Coke and a lot of um, eventually meth at the same time. And as a result of that, you know, my mind was <laughs> breaking, you know. Yes, I do. <laughs> I do. Because you always think you're like, okay, if I go up a little bit and then I come down a little bit and then I go sideways over here and then I'll drink a little bit and then I do. Yeah. And I, I used to um, I used to say like, no, I'm doing like a, a personal chemistry experiment. You know, this is just <laughs> like I felt very yeah. scientific about it. back in the day. I don't know if you remember this. Back in the day, mm -hmm. we had a book called The Pill Book and uh -huh. and it was like a dictionary for pills. And I would yes, sit on the floor and, and it had these. the pictures, right? And this was mm -hmm. way before, you know, you could Google anything. And right. I would sit on the floor and like read through the pill book. And I felt very studious yeah. and and mm -hmm. official about what I was doing yes. because I was reading about each drug and like what they look like and that kind of thing. So like when I would grab a handful of pills to take them, somehow because I had read this book, I felt like, that absolved me from being a drug addict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was a connoisseur. Exactly. A sommelier of pills. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Not my fault they didn't have a certification at that time. Okay, so then so, the t things get a little hairy because the Kansas yeah. Bureau of Investigation 
gives you a mm-hmm. little knock on the door. Yeah, they come calling. They came. Um, how they how they find out about your your little pop up? What what happened there? Oh, that's that's quite the story. So I had this roommate, and I met the guy as we do because someone said he had some drugs I wanted to try, and he was selling drugs, and I was selling drugs, and I was basically getting kicked out of my apartment with the guys I was living with, and. I was like, okay, let's move in together mm-hmm. and I'll handle the hard drugs. You handle the hallucinogens. Okay. And how could this go wrong? No, I mean, it's like uh, it, that That makes complete sense. Like you stay in your lane. Yeah, exactly. So, so we move in together and he gets this girlfriend and every night without fail, she comes over, they get into a fight and do a bunch of drugs, and then she leaves at like 3 in the morning after screaming at him. Mm -hmm. And when I say every night, that's very literal. I mean, it was every single night for three months. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) it was horrible. And then one night, it escalates for whatever reason. Uh, I know where this is going. And so they go into the parking lot, Uh and uh, she she rips um, a mirror off of his car. Okay. And so he rips a mirror off of her car. Right. Only fair. And so she rips the the other mirror off. Okay. And then they get into their cars, and they start driving them into each other Uh at 3 in the morning. Yep, yep, yep. Like like bumper cars. Obviously, the police are called. Yes. And so they both get arrested and taken to jail (laughs) because they're idiots. And when she gets into jail, she says to the cops, so what are you guys going to do about all the drugs they have in their house? Yeah, yeah, of course. And they're like, tell us more about these drugs that they have in their house. Yeah, yeah. So they go and they do a little reconnaissance mission. And my roommate has San Pedro cactus. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, but like a mescaline, you can cook it and make mescaline. Oh, yeah, exactly. See, I'm good. I still got and, it. And and that's on the. There you go. And they have that on. We had that on the porch. Wait, is the cactus? So they illegal? see that. Yes. The actual cactus yes, itself it is. is illegal. I'm pretty sure it was. I just know that they use that to say, "Yep, there's definitely something going okay, on." Okay. Okay. So they come and they knock on the door at 9 a.m. And I am very upset because everyone knows I don't wake up until four in the afternoon. Right, naturally. So I go and I open the door and they come flying in. They had their little ram ready to go, but they didn't need it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, they just go through the apartment and take everything they can find. And so your parents being uh, attorneys, I'm sure you were really excited to let them know that you too had an interest in the law (laughs) and would be pursuing a career in needing legal help. Mm -hmm. Well, and so here's the funny part is they didn't arrest us. What? I know. They, They went through and they found so much stuff, uh, especially in my roommate's room, because he was like, a manufacturer. And so they took all of his stuff, all of my stuff, and they said, it is going to take us a long time to go through all this at a lab. And so we're not going to arrest you. And we'll uh, don't call us. We'll call you. That makes no sense. 
It doesn't, does it? It was very bizarre, but I was like, uh, well, I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. No, totally. Don't ask questions. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth on that one. Yeah. So I didn't have to tell my parents. Um, I just ended up basically accidentally telling them when I was really messed up one night. And I told them in a bizarre way. I said, oh, I need more money because my money was in my wallet and my friend whose house I was at got raided by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. And they were like, they freaked out. And they said, and at this point I hadn't been in school for like six months and I'd been lying to them that I had graduated. And, <laughs> yeah. And I had no proof of my graduation because I didn't have my, you know, certificate or my uh, degree. So they were like, that's it. You are coming to Texas. Where in Texas were they? They were in Dallas. Okay. Okay. So they're in Dallas. Okay. You come home to Texas. How's that go? So it sort of seems to me like, like there's a, there's a point there where, cause my dad drives up from Texas. It's about an eight hour drive. And there's this point there where I'm like really relieved okay. because I'm finally leaving all this madness behind. And that lasts, uh, until I get there <laughs> and cool eight hours. I'm like, yeah, exactly. And then I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to detox and this is going to suck. I got to find something. And so I find some weed and I start drinking and I get through the detox and I really kind of have it in my head. I'm just going to smoke weed for the rest of my life and be cool. Okay. And then what? What happened to cool? And then uh, cool didn't cool actually changed to. I am suicidal now Okay, because um, I was just like, I was no longer happy with the way that I felt. Right. And, right. and so I was what, really like, um, what started going through your head? Like, you know, sometimes when I was using, you know, sometimes I would think to myself, like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to deal with this. And then there's a difference between that and like, I really want to attempt suicide, right? I'm contemplating right. suicide. Did you did you get to the a place where your thoughts really changed to I want to I I think I want to execute on this for lack of a better term? Yes, because I was like after getting this and I had gotten several DUIs in the middle of all this too. So, after I get these DUIs and then I get raided and then they say we're just going to let you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, right. That's and, terrifying. and I know what they've pulled out of there, you know? Right. So, and they went through my phone and I know what they pulled out of there. So it's like all bad. And I know that something is going to go to hell and I haven't graduated school and I have no job. And I'm just like, I see no prospects for my future at all. So the depression just gets worse and worse and worse. And I'm finally like, okay, you know, I need to get out of here. I can't, there's no point. What, what were the thoughts that were going on for you? So it was like, oh, and I had left a girlfriend behind in Kansas too, who I cared about deeply. And so, you know, I was really depressed about that too. And, you know, I was like, okay, how am I going to do this? Because I had been planning on doing it in Kansas before I ended up moving. Okay. And at one point I had went out and I bought a bunch of drugs, I bought a gun, I bought some alcohol and I was going to do it. But my girlfriend was, 
was the one driving me around to do these things, and she is not an idiot. So she just stayed with me for like three days until all the drugs were gone. Right. And I was too scared to do it. But the thoughts were, were exactly that. Like, there's no point in living. There's no point in any of this. I have completely ruined my life. You know, I'm in Texas. I have all my friends are gone. Everything is gone. You know, I don't want to live anymore. And I took several trips back to Kansas to visit my girlfriend, convincing my parents, you know, to give me money and so forth. And I go back one time and I steal $500 from her, right? Ostensibly, I love her, but now I'm stealing money from her and I to go get Oxycontin. And of course, she I'm the only freaking person in there. So <laughs> <laughs> she knows that I stole it's it. It's a regular whodunit. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> and so it's really clear that I stole this and she's freaking out and we get in this huge argument and I have all the oxy in my hand. And I say, if you think I stole this, I'm just going to eat this right now. And she was like, she didn't say anything. And I, and in that moment, I was like, this is my chance. So I ate it all. And, you know, then I was like, okay with it. I was like at peace. I'm like, okay, I'm going to die. And I walked out of the apartment in a storm, but I didn't want to be bored for the next 45 minutes. So I needed something to do until I died. So I pulled my phone out and of course I hadn't been charging it because I'm a drug addict. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, I have enough battery life to listen to some music before I die. And then the phone dies in my hand. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll just wander around. And so I pass this alley that I had planned on dying in. And I walk into, and keep in mind, I haven't lived in this place in six months in this town, Lawrence, Kansas. So I walk around the corner and I find this like labor ready place where you can go in and apply for jobs. And I go in and sit down and start applying. Oh, for jobs. my. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. You're like, it's never too late to start. <laughs> exactly. I love the optimism. <laughs> I know, right? Um, uh, skills. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just totally crazy. And um <laughs> You know, there's this girl sitting across from me, so I start hitting on her in a you know peak of revenge, and and then I'm sure I just passed out like right. mid sentence right. while talking to this girl, and so and I wake up and they're hitting me with Narcan, and you know I tell them that I I did it on purpose, and then I get to go to you know the psych ward for a few days. Yep, yeah, I know it well. Thank God for Narcan. Been the I know been to right? that party. So you go to the psych ward and and the psych ward is a special place. I've been a few times. Yes, it is. Um it's interesting being there, you know, you as a as a drug addict too because, you know, you're like, well, I'm not crazy, but also cuz cuz you see the people who are legitimately looney tunes like really right. struggling and you think that you're different. But like meanwhile you just took a handful of pills and applied for jobs, you know, in it right, during right. a suicide attempt. So like it's, it's, you know, we, but I remember thinking like, well, I don't belong here. <laughs> um, what? Okay. So how did you end up, how did you end up getting sober? So I left 
the psych ward and I was required by for one of my DUIs to take some alcohol classes, whatever that is. And they told my parents at the psych ward, he needs some serious help. So I start going to this this place, an outpatient treatment center in Texas. And while I'm going to this, it's dual diagnosis, thankfully. So I do some psych stuff and they put me on antidepressants, which almost immediately relieved the depression. Wow. It was like, yeah, it was really crazy how well it worked. But on the the other side, the alcohol and drug side, they're like, you know, you have to stay sober <laughs> to continue doing this, right? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm just smoking weed. And they're like, well, when you were on the psych side, you could get away with that, but not here. So I was like, no problem. I can get pissed. You know, so I start getting pissed from my um, my little brother's friend who, so... You're talking about you know, get I, to get clean drug tests. Exactly. Exactly. So that I'm allowed to complete this program so that I my DUI is satisfied. And because I just did not see weed as a problem, I did not think it was a problem. Right. But they forced me to go to AA meetings, and that's when I began to realize that it was a problem. How, what made you realize that? Like, how, what, what made it a problem? I just started to make friends in these meetings, and I realized that, you know, they are all really sober. They are all actually sober from everything. And I wanted to be sober too eventually. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't stop on my own. But I start. I got a sponsor like all my friends had, and I started doing some step work. And eventually, you know, I got to step three, and I was lying to my sponsor. I told him I was sober. I was smoking weed the whole time. We call those and dirty chips. Exactly. Making dirty exactly. chips. <laughs> And, you know, I, one day I, um, I went to do my third step prayer and, you know, I fell to my knees and I prayed and I really wanted to stop. And, um, I knew I was going to get high that day and I knew there was nothing I could do about it. And, uh, I prayed really hard and the desire was taken away. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so cool. I, I, you know, it's funny. I talk about this, like I didn't have that experience. I've been in uh, sober in an AA over 15 years. And uh, well, actually, I've been sober over 15 years. I've been in AA over 20. And, and I, you know, it's like my experience, I always thought I was doing something wrong, because that desire, like that deep desire wasn't taken away from me. It it's it like happened over time. So I, right. I, you know, I always make mention of that for people who are in program or trying program, like, you know, you don't have to, you're not doing it wrong if that doesn't go away. But a lot of people right. do get the, have that experience and it's amazing. Yeah, it, it really, it was so amazing that I went to my uh, brother's room who was smoking weed a lot at the time. And I said, I need you to load a bowl immediately. And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he, And I said, just do it. And then I was like, now hit it. And he was like, what? And I was like, just do it. And he hits it. And I say, now offer it to me. <laughs> and he and he goes, do you want to smoke? And I was like, no, I don't. Oh, my and God. And it's very strange. That's amazing. <laughs> it's also an amazingly, like, drug addict thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I know. 
It's so good. Oh my God. Okay. And so, so are you, so now you're fully sober or what, what, what's the. Yeah. So I'm fully sober for about five months, three months in, I decide I don't need the program anymore (laughs) that I'm good. And I relapse at five months. A friend of mine is like, do you want to drink? And I, I hadn't thought of it in five months. And I said, I do. Now that you mention it. Now that you mention it. And so she stayed sober that night. I went and smoked some weed after she went to bed. And, um, you know, that started a a relapse that was about nine months that got really bad. Mm. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. I want to interrupt this episode to have a short little discussion about support groups. And there is no better person to talk to about this than my production coordinator, Ashley Joe Brewer, AJB, if you will. AJB, hi. Hi. Okay. You're a big fan of community. You attend community support group meetings. Give Why? Why, why should people care? I absolutely love community because it creates a community. And I know that sounds funny, but It truly provides a space for anyone and everyone, no matter what they are going through. Just to give you an example, I invited or told a friend about community because she was really struggling with binge eating disorder and had gone to many different groups and felt shunned or not accepted or like it wasn't a place for her. And at community, she found a place because in community meetings, it's we don't care what the substance is or what the struggle is. Everyone is accepted no matter where they are in life, no matter what they are recovering from. And I think that's what's beautiful about community. Oh, I love it. And I, I, yes, I 100% agree with you that the value is that you don't have to know what your problem is, what your struggle is, what you want to give up or not give up, or whether you're abstinent or whether you're stopping one, whatever, whatever it is, you are welcome and you are welcome in this place. And it's a great place to discover the answers to all the questions that you're looking for in a community and have that support. And it's free to anyone. You go to lionrock.life. And there is a tab with community meetings. There are different days, different times, different subjects. There's even a cooking group called Community Table. There are so many different options, something out there for everyone. So I highly recommend, maybe after you listen to this, if you are looking for more community in your life, more friends, more support, please, please go check out community, lionrock.life. Click that community tab. During the relapse, you know, once you learn about recovery and then relapse, I feel like, you know, they, there's the the trite sayings of like a head full of AA and a beer full of, or a belly full of beer don't mix or whatever. And, right, and, right. and as silly as that sounds, that saying is, I have found that to be incredibly true, that it is no longer, you're, if you're, have awareness about what you're doing. It is really mm-hmm. hard to to not have that in your head and be thinking about that. It's really difficult to enjoy it the same way. Yeah, it was a real pain in the ass. I mean, it really was like I tried to block it out, but as I started 
you know, I only smoked weed for a month and then I started going back to the hard drugs and it would just be really annoying, you know, because I would have to like lie about going to meetings mm-hmm. to my parents mm-hmm. and, you know, and I would think about the meetings and, oh, you know, maybe I should go to one and <laughs> right, you know, right. all that crap. But it, I would be using, I'd be like, see, this is the phenomenon of craving. <laughs> this is what's happened. <laughs> You're walking yourself through it, but not out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's and 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 then at the same time, right? You're dealing with pending felonies, so the because yeah. of the raid. So it sounds right. like job job prospects uh, were less than abundant. Well, so at the time, I had no like pending felonies were like not happening because it took them a year and a half to go through everything that were, that was, that they found. Yeah. So So I know it really was. And so I had no idea what was happening with it at all. I just, one day I got, you know, a letter basically, (laughs) but they were like, by the way, you have, you know, five felony charges. I was like, Oh, cool. But at that time there were no, none of that was happening. So I was, available for jobs i couldn't get them because i was getting got it okay okay and and then after that nine months how did you get sober again so that's also a really weird story so i was not trying actively to get sober i had been using really heavily and a lot of drugs i had i needed to do you know like an upper an opiate a benzo i had to drink i had to smoke weed so i was the only way I could get okay was by doing a lot of stuff at once and I couldn't stop. And I don't think I really wanted to stop. So my little brother and I, and, uh, and my parents are not really aware of any of this at all. They're not aware of it. They think you're sober. And they think I'm sober. Okay. And so they go on a trip to Wyoming and leave my, me and my brother there. And, my brother is in high school. He's 17 years old. And I'm just, and he lives in this little, like, like it was a weird house. It had a separate apartment as part of the house, basically. And he lived in there. And I lived on the third floor of the brownstone. And so I was basically like, you do your thing. I'm going to do my thing. We don't need to interact. And he was like, okay. And then one day I get a call from my mom. Uh, like two days into the trip, and she said, Zachary's having chest pain, and you need to take him to the hospital. So I'm like, okay, that's weird and not good because I've been up for a day or two. And I was like, okay, I'll drive him there. So I get in the car, I drive him, and my intention is to take him to one of those, like, dock-in-the-box places. Um, (laughs) Because I'm like, it can't be that bad. It's chest pain in a 17-year-old. How bad could it be? And I take him, I drive right past it because I'm so out of it. And I go, I'll just take him to the main hospital, which was um, Grapevine Baylor, and which is a really good hospital, thank God. And so I take him there and they start doing tests and they're like, he has an infection in his heart. Oh my this is God. Serious. Yeah, really like he could die. He might need a heart transplant. Um, Technical question. Sorry, just yeah. for my medical mind. Uh, how did they, was it a blood test that showed he had an infection in his heart? 
something like that. I was so out of right, it. Right, I, right, right. Okay. Really I'm like, how, how did you go from chest pain to like, how quickly? I mean, that you must have been shocked. Yeah, I was. And this was like, I was already kind of, you know, in a very tenuous place. So that kind of pushed me over the edge. I start freaking out. My anxiety is like through the roof. Uh, my parents are calling me and constantly they're coming back from Wyoming. My br- other brother is flying in from Chicago. Um, it's just like this mess. And, you know, somewhere in there, I decide that I need a gun. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, will, I don't know why. I, I truly, the, the one of my favorite amusements is the thoughts of the alcoholic addict mind. Like, I get it. I get why you'd need a gun in a moment like that, even though it yeah. makes zero sense. I totally, like, sense. that's addict logic. And addict logic is a really incredible thing. Yeah. Okay, tell me. Yeah. Tell me, I mean, I know why I would need a gun in a situation like that. Why would sure. you need a gun in a situation uh, like that? You know, I don't know. Okay. I really couldn't tell you why. I just saw this gun of my father's that was in the house. Okay. And I said, I said take right that now we have a medical condition and I feel yeah. like the only solution is this handgun. Could could be important. Okay. You know, you wanna you know, I was a boy scout. Right. You wanna be prepared. You wanna be prepared. Okay, good. Good, good. <laughs> so I go to pick my brother from Chicago up at the airport. And with the gun? Very, oh, no. With the gun. Oh, no. And I'm very clearly, you know, totally out of it. And he's seen it. And at one point, <laughs> someone cuts me off. So I get out the gun <laughs> and I'm like waving the gun at this guy. And oh. then I, co- I cock the gun. I make it very clear that I have cocked this gun. Okay. And then the guy, like, he he disappears, obviously. And then I, my brother and I are driving to the hospital. And I'm like, how do you... How does one uncock a gun? And oh. we get so we get in this parking lot of this hospital and we're Googling how to uncock a gun. Oh. And I think we, we had to put like a stick in it and like take the bullets out and then pull the trigger. And my brother goes immediately to my parents and says, Adam is completely messed up and He's crazy, and he has this gun. <laughs> and just we, what every parent wants to hear. <laughs> I know, right? And there, and I'm like, I'm like nodding out into my soup in the in the cafeteria, and it all it becomes very clear how messed up Adam is, right? And my parents are like, "Oh, great! We we have one child uh-huh. who is uh-huh. dying yep. and needs a heart transplant, and then our idiot oldest son mm-hmm. is." you know, completely messed up on drugs. And this is just a disaster. Yep. So they put, they have this experimental device that they end up implanting in my brother that, that his heart stops and it pumps the blood through his body. It's like a little thing, a little bigger than a quarter. And it some, and that's all he needs. And it pumps his blood for him for a while. And um, his heart ends up healing and the infection goes away, and he is like afterwards, like a year later, it's as though nothing had ever happened. He never needs a heart transplant. He's wow. like totally fine. How yeah. how did he uh, get a, an infection in his lung? I mean, in, they, in his they, heart? They never figured it out. I mean, they just said that this is just a thing that happens. It could have been a virus. They got it. Okay. They, they have no idea he could have caught 
a cold or something, and then it just somehow made its way in there. Oh my god! Okay, so he's his. Thank God. Okay, he's better. Yeah. A year later, you're you you on the other hand. <laughs> Me on the other hand, I end up going to an inpatient rehab because it's very clear how messed up I am. Right. And, um, you know, they put me on Suboxone because I go to the rehab. I don't remember this at all, but I go to the rehab and they give me the set of rules and I'm like totally messed up. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. And I cross out one of the rules and I'm like, I'm not doing that. And I cross out one of the rules. And I'm like, okay, he needs to go to detox. (laughs) We can't take him here. Um, I get on Suboxone and I I finally get off Suboxone at the rehab and that's when I become very terrified because I'm finally sober for the first time in nine months. And I'm like, I have got to do something because now I really don't want to go back. And I'm very clear that weed does not work now. Right. Okay. Okay. And where does it, t- what happens? Like what, what take me from there? Yeah. So my, um, my rehab that I'm at has uh, lets people come in and do an a- do H and I's and stuff. And for people who don't know, that's hospitals and institutions, which the twelve step program brings meetings into different hospitals and institutions. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. And um, so this Cocaine Anonymous group comes in, and they do a presentation called Stick Man. And, you know, there are variations of this uh, presentation, but it just shows the cycle of addiction. And I see it and I'm like, okay, that's very clear. I can, I am definitely stuck in that. And then this guy comes up and starts sharing and he's really passionate. You know, he's very, you know, you can tell he's sober and he loves it and things are good. And I just race up to him and say, hey, man, I need a sponsor. And he's like, okay, well, well, we're going to read through this book and, you know, you're, we're going to, and I go, no, no, I have read the book. I need to work some steps, man. Um, because it, it had also become very clear to me that I did not have any other options. Right. Nothing else was going to work for me. And gift of desperation. Exactly. And, you know, yeah, exactly. And so we start going through some steps and, you know, I work them, as quickly as I can. And I get through in about 45 days and, you know, I haven't thought about using or drinking since. So what, when, when you talk about working through the steps, you know, I, I remember looking at the wall and seeing the 12 Mm -hmm. steps up there and going, that's great. I don't know what any of that shit means. And, you know, like admitted to, and I also was like, why does this take so long? Like admitted to ourselves that we were powerless and our lives were unmanaged. Okay, done. I'm admitting, admitted, you know, like turned our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand him. And God, I used group of drunks or good orderly Mm -hmm. direction. And again, like also turned my life over, like literally didn't understand, like, do I hand someone something? Do I turn something over? Like, what does that, you know, what does that actually mean? I think, you know, where, where I did understand was the directions around the fourth step where we write our inventory about um, our resentments and we find our part. And I did understand sharing that. And then I did understand making amends. What were some of the profound moments for you that actually changed you? Because for me, that part of finding, doing the four step and finding that I had a part in my resentments that I didn't have to think of myself as a victim anymore. 
that was a profound shift in my, you know, to this day in my life. I wonder, you know, what was the profound shift for you? Cause it was, it's, you know, obviously you've had one. Right. Yeah. So it was in step nine when I started making the amends to people because I had, you know, my step four was extensive. Um, and you know, I step four was kind of funny. I went to my sponsor and I said, well, I got about two resentments and they're from last week. And he was like, well, that seems like BS. So why don't you pray this prayer and ask to be shown what you need to see? And I do that. And these names start flooding into my head, going all the way back to kindergarten. And so I have this long fourth step, which means that I have a long eighth step and of all the people that have harmed. And this list has like 150 people on it. And I start making these amends and I make my first three amends to my little brother who, while he was in the hospital, by the way, dying right of this heart infection, Mm -hmm. I stole his wallet and just, I was like, well, he's not going to need it. Right. Right. And, And, you know, so I make amends to him. I make amends to my mom. I make amends to my dad. Those are very emotional. And I go out into the car and I can just feel this change. Like I know that there's been a change and, I start going around Dallas Fort Worth and making all these amends and then I start having and then Kansas sends the letter like by the by um, <laughs> you <laughs> you are now being charged with all these felonies so I have to go back to Kansas numerous times for court and stuff like that and in the meantime I'm making amends up in Kansas too and that that really was profound for me because I had never, I had always been the victim, right? Everyone else deserved what happened to them. And now finally I'm being serious about, I have taking responsibility for what I have done. I love that and and relate to it a lot. I, you know, for the fourth step for people who don't know is um, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And so there are instructions that a sponsor takes you through. And for me, you know, there are four columns. You write down, you know, a name basically like, uh, you know, Adam. I, and then you write down your resentment. I'm resentful at you for stealing my wallet and what that what that affects. That affects your, you know, your your pocketbook. That affects your, you know, friendships. That maybe affects your your um, self esteem ego and then you write your part and your part in that resentment and and so that piece you know what was what was that piece of you know have i ever been have i ever done the same thing um you know so am i am i a hypocrite am i self righteous all these things and then you also write down a, a list of people you've harmed and a lot of the time the people who you resent are also people you've harmed which is a really interesting phenomenon they you know it all comes out and then in the fifth step you share this you share your fourth step with your sponsor or someone trusted some people do it with a therapist some people do it with a, a member of the clergy whatever whatever it is you sh- and you share that and and then in the eighth step you make a list of all the people you've harmed and became willing become willing to make amends to them and then in the ninth step you make those amends and the amends process you know i think you know, what you're talking about too, going around and making these amends, you're not going around and saying, sorry, you know, um, the way that it was explained to me, which I just, being a poli-sci major, I, I very much appreciated this, which was, you know, 
we did not say sorry to the Constitution. We amended it, right? We made a change. There has to be a change. It's not an a sorry. It's not a sorry because people were used to us saying sorry or, or whatever it was. And when you make an amends, you're saying you know you, you're uh, taking ownership and and proposing a change in behavior, how that's going to change. And it's very powerful to go from being this per- this piece of shit, basically, who steals and does all these things that you would never do in your right mind. And to taking ownership, there's something incredibly powerful of saying, I stole your wallet. And it was a horrible thing for me to do. And like, just that act of taking ownership and, and making that amends and and saying how you're going to do things differently and holding yourself to that. There's just a, a psychic change that happens. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened with me. It was a psychic change. What about the mental health and the food? How does that fit into this story of, of getting well? So the mental health was, you know, it, it was something that I thought I had taken care of. Because I was taking the pills, I was going to a psychiatrist, the pills were working. I get to a year sober, and I'm like, I don't need these. And I don't want to be on them, and that's all there is to it. So I stopped taking them. Which is an incredibly, as I've done before, an incredibly common thing for people to do who struggle with mental illness, to take yourself off your meds. Like, makes no fucking sense. I don't... I don't know why we do it. We do it all. It's just like, it's like, well, I just stopped taking them. And, (laughs) and I think, and there's also this piece, which I always laugh about where I say like, I don't want to be on medication or I've heard people say like, I don't want to be beholden to something, you know, mean, Mm. meanwhile, you know, being beholden to meth and oxy, no big deal. But you know, if it's Prozac, you know, that's the end of the world. But it's a very common thing to take ourselves off our medication. So for people who are listening, maybe your loved one, maybe maybe you're that person who's like, why do I keep doing this? I think we just feel like we feel better. And so we forget or, or attribute it to something we're doing instead of, you know, the medication or, you know, maybe we don't need this anymore, but it is a very, very common thing to do. So you, you took yourself off your medication. I'm sure that went swimmingly. Mm, yeah. Oh, yeah. It went wonderfully. I, I'm um, sure you did a uh, a doctor supervised slow mm, taper too, right? Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, none of those things happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I I just come off of it, and you know, I it was because of the side effects, right? Right. right and, totally. I, and and the side effect was I sweat a lot. Ah, I was sweating a lot. Interesting. And and so I was tired of sweating a lot. Yeah. So that was like that's reasonable. The the deep depression that led me to a suicide attempt is preferable to sweating too much. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Next, <laughs> so next I come, right exactly. So I come off of it, and you know, really for the next eight years of sobriety, <laughs> I am <Eight> depressed. <laughs> oh, oh, it's just it's just we're just such an amazing bunch. Okay, eight years, yeah. Yeah, and but I don't realize it because I am so deep in the program. Right. You know, and I'm carrying the message every week, and I'm working with tons of sponsees, and I'm going to meetings, and I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to do. I don't realize how irritable I really am. I don't realize how, you know, sad I really am. And it isn't until 
I have a, I lose my job basically through no fault of my own. And it's a job I'd been working at at five years. This is my first big boy job. Um, the place basically shuts down and everyone gets let go. And I finally am like, holy crap, you know, I am depressed and I have to do something about this. And I go to a psychiatrist and I, you know, slowly get on some medication. I get on some antidepressants. The depression goes away. I get on some non-narcotic anxiety meds. You know, the anxiety starts to get lessened. And I start and eventually I'm like, hey, I didn't even realize this, but apparently I have mood problems. (laughs) And Uh, (laughs) And every girlfriend you've ever had is like, no. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Yeah, don't say I know, right? Like, I, I remember this time really specifically where <laughs> when I was using drugs and alcohol, I had this friend who, and I was still selling, I had this friend come over who I was really close with, and he would give me books and stuff to read, and, like, we took classes together, and we were close friends, and he comes over to buy some pills from me, and he gives me four $20 bills, a $10 bill, a $5 bill, four $1 bills, and four quarters, and I look at him and I say, if you ever come back to me with four quarters again, I will never speak to you. And I'm like so angry out of nowhere. And he's like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and it was like it had been there forever. And I just didn't notice it until almost nine years sober. Also, just for the for the those of us out there who made Coinstar our close friend, um, <laughs> Pretty rude of a drug ad of a drug dealer to not accept coins. Okay, <laughs> I, just want to say I, know, I have right? shown up. <laughs> it just reminded me of like going to coin store and being like, they took fucking eight percent, and then <laughs> this know. bag of coins to my drug dealer, and just the look that you're describing right now is like, mm. if you ever come back to me with a bag, full, I'm like, this is currency. You must take it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is legal tender. Yeah, this is legal tender. Exactly. Don't judge me. So you get, so at this point now you married a woman who you met in Alcoholics Anonymous. Is that, was she with you when, at that time when you got back on the meds? Yes, she was. And we'd been married for years at that point. And, you know, there had Mm -hmm. been, she knew that I had anger issues. Right. You know, I think she was probably just too scared to say anything to me and which really sucks. You know, it made me feel really, really shitty when I realized that. And I, I was telling my therapist, I said, I don't want to be that guy anymore. I want this to go away. And so we started getting on some mood stabilizers and that helped immensely. And so now it is, it is greatly reduced that, that impulse still comes up, but it is something that I can manage now rather than it just takes the reins. Right. Right. How, did you have, um, you know, a lot of people struggle to get sober with 12-step programs because of the God stuff. Did you have yeah. a background or did you have a faith before you came or was that easy for you? No, I was a full-blown atheist. Uh, okay, um, so tell me about that because I, I mean, I was too, so I get that. Yeah. But uh, I hear so often people are so turned off by the God stuff and, I, and it stops sure. them from having the experience that you and I have had. Sure. Yeah. And I was, um, when I first started going and I was still smoking weed, I would, um, I was reading in my big book and 
I was writing arguments in the margins yes. for why, you know, this was a why, crack of shit. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And which is hilarious. I'm arguing with dead men mm-hmm. from the 1930s. Um, <laughs> it's, it sounds really on point to me. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so I'm like, um, but eventually I have that experience with the, you know, that I told you about where the desire suddenly lifted and that convinces me more than anything else that there's some higher power. But when you were asked to pray, like, mm-hmm. you know, when you, you had to, your sponsor said to you, you need to pray for this to be right. lifted. Right. Yeah. I had an aversion to like the whole idea of prayer. How did you get to the sure. point where you're like, okay, I'll pray. Like, you know, if you, especially if you're an atheist and being told to do that. Well, I think because, I really wanted to be a part of, mm, you know, mm, I, yeah. I really wanted to be doing the things my friends were doing. Yes. Um, like that. And I was very much a follower, you know, so when people said, you need to pray, I said, well, that's dumb, but I'll do it. Right. Okay. Okay. And then you had the experience and slowly it just took. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, was, I remember coming in and going, okay, guys, you're not fooling me that this is a Christian (laughs) program. I went to Catholic school. It's a big book, right? Mm -hmm. That has all the, you know, that's divinely inspired. Like we're saying, Mm -hmm. we're saying the, you know, holding hands and saying prayers. Like I, you know, I'm not an idiot. And, um, you know, but, but I also was out of options and I needed friends and I needed community. And Mm -hmm. there were other things out there, but not as prolific. There weren't as many, they weren't, you know, it was like, these were my people. So if they were going to do it, I like, I I had no place to have pride about what, you know, what did they say? A a drowning person is not worried about the color of the life raft, you know, and I was arguing about the color of the life raft, right? Which was the life raft being Alcoholics Anonymous saying like, well, it's blah, 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 blah. And, you know, I was a drowning person. So right. I needed to just hold on and shut the fuck up, which is what I, right. what, I what I ended <laughs> up, what I ended up doing. Talk to me about eating disorder, your eating stuff, how that manifested and how that manifests that, you know, as a, as a man, that it's, I, I know that it can be a little more difficult to discuss as a man because it's not as, you know, socially common. Right, right. So that was very much something that was being ignored or not even looked at throughout my sobriety. So at one point, you know, I had always yo-yoed with weight mm-hmm. and, you know, even when I was sober. Um, so I would get into these exercise kicks mm-hmm. and I would start exercising regularly and I'd go for runs every day and then it would get cold and I would stop running and, you know, I gained weight. And then I went to, um, to graduate school. And when I was in graduate school, you know, there's like no time to do anything. And I'm working full time while I'm in grad school. So, you know, I am just like eating and I'm drinking sodas all the time and, you know, I'm drinking energy drinks and I'm gaining weight and it starts to become visibly a problem. Right. But still, I'm like, I don't really know what to do about it. And then eventually I realize I'm like, I need to check out Overeaters Anonymous, you know, because I know that 12 step programs work and I have decided that this is an issue. So, 
And OA ends up being much, much more difficult and still is. You know, I still, to this day, I'm still struggling to get abstinence together. And I've been in OA for since like 2017, I guess. And I have a sponsor. I talk to him weekly, but I just can't, I can't get it yet. And it's hard, you know, because just there's like 90% women in the program. So, you know, it's hard to find a man who, you know, and you go to meetings and you're the only guy there, you know, so that it took a while. Honestly, I think what had to happen was I had to get into pain around it. Mm -hmm. And that happened after grad school where I was like, I'm like 260 pounds and you know, I got to do something about this. And it had gotten worse over time. You know, I used to be able to lose the weight. Mm-hmm. And then I, I couldn't lose the weight. I had the I've had the same experience and where, you know, I just for a long time was able to manage it. Right. Like man, go on these kicks mm-hmm. or whatever, lose the weight, blah, blah, blah. And then um, as my life got busier, more complicated, I got you know older, mm-hmm. all those things just it w- I had to deal with it as the problem it was and not with some diet or whatever it was, you know, and right, right. And going to OA has been amazing and really difficult. And, um, yeah. and I, I see that with the men, how, you know, how difficult that is also having, you know, there being fewer people, but, you know, I, I absolutely admire that you have gone and persisted and I get that, you know, it's another gift of desperation because that's why we do that shit yeah. is we, we get desperate, yeah. you know, and so we make those, we do what works. I highly recommend checking out something called Bright Line Eating, which has come okay. out of Overeaters Anonymous. It's a neuroscience, a, a neuroscientist who she was in OA for a long time and she's sober a long time. Like, you know, she's gnarly like us. And she, um, created this, she created this program and it's been just a really helpful thing for me, um, as a sober person. And they have meetings where there are, there are a lot more men. So, and they Mm -hmm. are 12, they're basically like 12 step based bright line eating meeting. So I'll send you the stuff if you're okay. interested in that. But yeah, definitely. It's it's um it's a battle. And and I feel like I don't know, you know, with recovery is it's just a progression. Like for me, I always say like it's not a matter of if I'll use. Right. It's a matter of when I'll use because mm-hmm. my so I can either be involved in the decision of what I'm going to use or not. Mm-hmm. And if I'm involved right. and if I'm involved in the decision of what I'm going to use to make myself feel better, maybe it's meditation or running or you know some sort of self-healing thing and if I'm not involved in the decision, right? Like I let that decision happen without my consent, so to speak, mm-hmm. then it's going to be food, sex, you know, my phone, right. drugs, alcohol, etc. And so yeah. it's never a question for me whether or not I'm going to use. I'm always going to use. I just today I get to have a choice in the decision making process. I get to right. get ahead of it. And if I stop doing that, which I have over the course of my sobriety, then the choice is made for me and it's usually not one I like. Yep. Absolutely. What does your life look like today? You're nine and a half years sober. You're married. You know, tell me about how, how, what it looks like today and, and what you're doing. Yeah. So my life has changed pretty drastically in the last couple of years. So we were, um, 
you know, we were living in this big house and we had good money coming in and I lose my job. And, you know, so this is like, I'm like 2018 near 2019. And so this is pre pandemic. Right. And I start trying to find freelance gigs and I'm a, I'm a content writer, you know, so I'm writing marketing content and I have a lot of experience, but I can't get a job to save my life. Mm. So I'm like doing freelance stuff on the side, like anything I can get. Like I'm writing gambling blog posts. I've never, I've gambled like twice in my whole life. <laughs> you know, I know like nothing about it. And so we end up selling the house, um, putting the house on the market and the house goes on the market when the pandemic hits. And so we eventually do end up selling it and we end up moving into my parents' house because they have a house in Wyoming. And they go to live in Wyoming for about six months out of the year. And so they're in Wyoming. We're staying in their house um, trying to figure out what to do. And then they eventually move back. And my wife and I decide to become that she's a nurse. And so she decides we decide she's going to become a travel nurse. And so we started that we're on our first gig right now. And we are in Maine, which is very far away from Dallas mm. and very different, uh, as you can imagine. Yes. Very cold. <laughs> and um, but my sobriety had it really looks it really looks the same and different. You know, my program looks basically the same. It, I had continued to carry the message. Now I'm doing it on Zoom for my old rehab. You know, I'm going to the meetings from my old. Uh, from my home group back in Texas, but it's on Zoom. You know, I'm trying to do more meetings because we're all, you know, we're all locked in everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm doing meetings online uh, a lot, I'm trying to do OA meetings online. Um, so the program looks pretty similar. Life on the outside looks different, but it feels about the same inside, mm. you know, especially because I have, you know, especially because I have this, um, this medication that's helping me so much. So, you know, life is, life is pretty good today. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time, uh, writing on the side. I do a lot of, uh, fiction and so, and nonfiction. And so, you know, I do, I've been doing that for five years and that's going well. I'm getting stuff published. So, you know, the career and then the content writing career is going well. You know, I'm, I started a business. I've got money coming in. So, you know, things are looking pretty good. I love that. I love that. And it's really, you know, it's just putting one foot in front of the other. And I mean, I don't know about you, but my experience is like yep. when I took 15 years sober this year, I just my I just couldn't understand. My brain could not wrap my head around how it had been that long for a person like me who, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not against drugs and alcohol. They just don't work for me. And, uh, right, if, right. you know, like if you can make it work and have a great life, more power to you. It's just not what works for me. Right. And, uh, and the fact that I've been able to do that for 15 years just blows my mind. And I don't, I, yeah. if you had told me that I was going to do that, I would have never believed you, but it's really that right. trite saying of like one day at a time. Yeah. No, it's a very bizarre feeling to know that you've been sober for, you know, when I think about it, nine and a half years, I'm like, I don't know how this Mm -hmm. has happened. You know, I just can't believe it. Sometimes I'm like, am I lying? (laughs) 
am I lying? Yeah. Like I like have to double check. Oh am I lying? Did I have I used? No, like it really, it's really true. It's really happened. I I definitely have that feeling when I wake up from a using oh, dream. Oh god, because the worst. My using dreams are always like I have already used, and there's nothing I can do about yep. it. Yep. And I have been secretly using, and I've been lying about it, and yeah. It's the worst feeling. Uh, It really is. It is. It is. It goes away, but every now and again, um, you know, it used to be bad, and now it's a lot better. But I, you wake up in the morning, and you're just like, oh, my God, what have I done? (laughs) I know, right? It's such a terrible, you look around, you're like, okay, okay. Yeah. I think it was a dream. Yeah, (sighs) right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. Um, where can people find your recovery blog and some of the stuff that you are publishing? Yeah, so adamfout.com. Uh, it's pretty easy to find. That's where my recovery blog and mental health blog is. And I have links on there to all the nonfiction stuff that I've published. So yeah, just go to adamfout.com and you'll find it all. Awesome. Okay, so that's adamfout.com. And you're on Instagram, yep. Adam Felt. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So you can find me. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. It was really you for great me. talking to you. Yeah, you too. This podcast is sponsored by LionRock.life. LionRock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information, and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting's schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.